Hey everyone, welcome to the Intelligent Conversations podcast where we believe everyone has a form of intelligence that resides within them. Our goal is to encourage these types of conversations for our audience to listen to. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, this is your host Josh Baker with the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today I have the privilege to speak with Doug Knoll. He is a best-selling author of four books and is the co-founder of Prison of Peace, which trains prisoners how to be peacemakers. He was born nearly deaf, blind, and crippled with two clubbed feet and left-handed. Despite all of that, he has still accomplished great things, so I look forward to hearing what he has to say. So thanks for coming on, Doug. I look forward to having you on. But do you think you could start uh, by introducing yourself to the audience and telling us about your experience with being nearly blind, deaf, and crippled at birth? Josh, it's great to be here. I was born in 1950, 71 years old today. Actually, my birthday was last week, as it turns out. And in those days, the kinds of things that we would never tolerate today were not only tolerated, it was just normal practice. So uh, I was... I, today, I would have been characterized as pretty pretty severely disabled and I would have gotten a lot of help. In those days, there was no help for anything. And my parents were following a guy by the name of Dr. Spock, who Benjamin Spock, who believed in um, strict disciplinary raising of children, a very authoritarian. And so it was a hard life. I grew up in affluence and privilege, but uh, emotionally, it was like a, a vast desert. And I just overcame stuff just by pure stubbornness. And I'm a pretty smart guy. Uh, you know, the, my, my vision problem was that I was severely nearsighted at 2,400, but that wasn't determined until I was in the fourth grade. I was nine years old. And some, some nurse finally had the bright idea to test my vision. <laughs> so they got me these big, thick Coke lens glasses and black rims, and I was just a classic nerdy-looking guy. Could Not a, much of an athlete because I didn't – I was three or four years behind developmentally in terms of my physical skills. So I was pretty much a buzzkill for the girls for my whole upbringing. And it was just not a fun time. Um, but I was smart enough and did well to go to Dartmouth College, came back to California after my undergraduate work and went to law school, did well in law school, worked for a year for a judge, and then became a civil trial lawyer trying large civil, commercial, and business cases. And I did that for 22 years until I finally decided that that wasn't my calling. And I went in mid-career, I went back to school and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies, left the practice of law in 2000 to become a mediator and a full-time peacemaker. And ever since that decision, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. And I've never been happier and more fulfilled in, ter in terms of the work that I do. That that's awesome. That's great to hear. I love hearing stories like that, especially where they come where everything is against all odds. And then you just you go and do great things. I love hearing things like that. But I'm kind of interested to hear your uh, thoughts on this. And I, I mean, you said that you were a lawyer at one point for 22 years, and then you transitioned to a peacemaker. How do you make that transition from lawyer to peacemaker? Well, I, I should clarify, I'm still a lawyer, but I just don't practice law. Uh, the, the way it happened was that I took up the martial arts uh, in the mid-1980s, and which I was horrible at for a long time. But ultimately, I got it, 
and earned my second degree, got, finally rose to second degree black belt in this very vicious northern Chinese kung fu style. And after that, my teacher, uh, well, it's a long story, but he basically kicked me out he, saying, you know, you're an asshole, you're a lawyer, <laughs> you're, you're going to hurt somebody, go learn Tai Chi. So I started studying Tai Chi, and, and in Tai Chi, there are two paradoxes. The first is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second paradox is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. Well, that didn't really compute with me. Uh, but I kept practicing, and eventually it soaked into me so that one day, some years later, I was in a courtroom cross-examining somebody, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? And after that trial, I had a river trip planned, a whitewater trip with a bunch of friends. And so I spent 10 days on the whitewater river thinking about how many people I'd served as a trial lawyer. And at the end of the trip, I decided that being a trial lawyer wasn't my thing. So when I came back home, I was driving down out of the mountains where I live in central California and heard the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, the West Coast Mennonite. University, which was in Fresno, not where I worked. And I enrolled and it completely changed my life. And that's how I became a peacemaker. I, I love it. So I think uh, for the audience that uh, that's listening right now, for those of you that are listening, I, I, I mean, just hearing it first glance, I had to actually look this up before uh, I got you onto this show. But what exactly does a peacemaker do? And what I mean, I feel like it is in the name, but what do they do uh, like career-wise? So there are many, many conflicts out in the world, and you can roughly divide the conflicts into two kinds of conflicts or disputes. One are conflicts that end up in lawsuits, and then there are conflicts and disputes that are non-litigated. They're not lawsuits. And as a mediator, I am engaged by lawyers to help settle lawsuits help them through, through a process of known as distributive negotiation. So I basically facilitate the negotiation of a lawsuit between, between lawyers and their clients to help them get rid of the case in a way that makes sense to everybody, although typically nobody's really thrilled <laughs> in most <laughs> cases. Uh, but they're happy to have the lawsuit over with. And, and, then, and so th that's a portion of my work. Another portion of my work is being called into conflicts where the law can't help people, and if it could help people, it would destroy wealth. For example, a family business conflict, or maybe a conflict over an estate or a trust, or maybe a conflict with an organizational conflict, such as a conflict within a board of directors or a, a, a corporate uh, governance conflict. And in these cases, I'm called in to, to be a peacemaker, where I, we're going to try to solve the problems, but at the same time, try to restore relationships. And that kind of work is similar to mediation, but requires a, a, a different set of skills and a different mindset than when you're mediating the litigated dispute. Uh, I also do a lot of teaching and coaching and writing, and uh, I teach people all over the world how to de-escalate anger, which is a skill I discovered in 2005, and uh, since 2005, I've been teaching it all over the world training people how to calm angry people in 90 seconds or less, which is the title of my fourth book that you mentioned. Um, and so that's essentially what I do. And it's a set of skills that people can learn. I mean, the Prison of Peace Project is a demonstration of that, where we teach lifers and long-termers in maximum security prisons 
how to become peacemakers and mediators in the way that I just described. And it takes a year to train them up and they are phenomenally effective at what they do. I, I actually, listening to you talk about this, I was like, this is really cool. Like, <laughs> just to say the least, this is something where you pretty much come in and you de-escalate a situation that most of the time ends up really, really bad for one party. Like someone ends up losing most of the time, but you usually will, from what I'm gathering, you come in and you'll say, all right, this is uh, what we have here. How can we have both people win? How can we have both parties win? And I think, I, I think we do need more people like that in this world. And I'm glad there's people out there willing to do that. But you mentioned a de-escalation and how you like de-escalate anger in 90 seconds. I, I'm kind of interested. What What's the strategy there? We are taught as children to listen to words and to ignore emotions. Remember when you were two years old and you fell and scraped your knee? What were you told? Don't cry. <laughs> That's exactly right. You said, don't cry. Suck it up, buttercup. Be a big boy. Big boys don't cry. Don't be a girly girl. And the girls are told the same thing. We are told from the time we are very young that emotions are bad, they're evil, they're weak, they're irrational. And, we, and, and as a result of that, we are never taught how to be emotionally competent. In fact, 96% of all families are emotionally incompetent, and the children produced in those families are emotionally incompetent too. I was certainly emotionally incompetent for many, many years. What I've discovered in my, well, let me back up. In my master's degree studies, I started studying neuroscience because I had the insight that all, everything starts in the human brain. So I ought to understand what's going on. And back then in the late nineties, nobody had ever heard of neuroscience. It was, it had been around for a long time, but the tech, the, the scanning imagery, scan, scanning technology, brain scanning technology was just coming online. And I had the good fortune to be tutored by a neuroscientist at Caltech and, uh, Became, became a lay student and began to understand the nature of emotions and how they, what they are and how they work. So that I came to the insight that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. This whole idea that we are rational beings is a myth. It's actually a lie that's been perpetrated on us for over 4,000 years. And with that insight, I just was really thinking hard about emotions until one day in 2005, I was involved in a very difficult contentious mediation with a divorced couple who couldn't sit in the same room with each other without screaming obscenities at each other. And I didn't know what to do. I, not, not, nothing in my training had taught me how to, what to do with these people, all the old active listening stuff and nonviolent communication, it's all, it's all worthless in these situations. So the thought came to me, listen to the emotions. And that's exactly what I had them do. Instead of listening to the words, I had them listen to and reflect back what the other person was feeling as they were telling their story. And the result was astounding. After about an hour of this, with both the man and the woman reflecting back the emotions of each other, at the end, the man put his hands in his face and started sobbing, really deep sobbing, racking sobs for about a couple of minutes. And finally looked up across the table and said, that's the first time you've listened to me in 25 years. And they settled the case in five minutes, apologized to each other because it was so stupid, and walked out holding hands to have lunch with each other. He could have picked my job with a forklift, literally. <laughs> I couldn't believe what happened. I know what I'd done, but I didn't know why. And so I started using it in other conflicts, and I got the same results. And then in two years later, in 2007, Matthew Lieberman, 
a neuroscientist at UCLA came out with a brain scanning study that showed exactly why this works. And it's called affect labeling. And without going into all the science of it all, basically our brains are hardwired to receive emotional information. And when we receive this emotional information in the form of an emotional reflection, the emotional centers of our brain, the the circuits that control our emotions are inhibited, they quiet down. And at the same time, our ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, our executive functioning part of our brain comes back online. And we literally calm down in 30 to 45 seconds. And that's what I witnessed. And then I have, now I have the neuroscience to support why it works the way that it does. And there's nothing else that works like this. Nothing. Believe me, if something else worked better, I'd be using it. But there's nothing out there other than, than this. And so I learned that you can calm any angry person in 90 seconds or less. And the secret to peacemaking is to calm people down, or as I tell my students, de-escalate, then problem solve. De-escalate, then problem solve. Most people want to go to problem solving first, which is always a mistake. Just makes it worse. But if you de-escalate first, then you can almost always get the problem solved and restore relationships. I, I like what you said there. I think there's a lot of value to that as well. I think people need to, one, take that to heart and realize that they need to listen to other people and try and uh, listen with their emotions and listen to other people's emotions, what they're feeling. I mean, I really like that point that you made there where it was like, we need to listen to other people's feelings. I, I, I like that point. But what do you mean? I, I mean, I glanced over your profile before we started this. And there's this question that you had that we could use. And it was, what do, what do you mean by listen to others into existence? I think this plays really well with each other. So I coined the frame, how to listen to other people into existence, because what I realized and what I experienced was that when we listen to and reflect another person's emotions, we are validating them at a very deep level. And they don't even have to be upset or angry. They can be happy or sad. It doesn't have to be just getting angry people calmed down. When, uh, when we listen to them in this way, we listen to their emotions, not to their words. The speaker feels so deeply validated that for most people, it's the first time they ever felt like they've been understood and heard at a deep level. So I coined the frame. And, well, then the way that the, the phrase came about is I was teaching, I was working with a bunch of middle school teachers, teaching them these techniques for the use in classrooms. And we were in a circle. And at the end of the circle, we were doing a debrief. And in the circle was one of the people who was sort of managing the project I was involved in. And she said, that's the first time I felt like I've ever been listened to in my life. And said, I've always been ignored. I've always been, no one has ever paid attention to me. Whenever I talk, people just ignore me and disrespect me, even in business, even here in the school district. And this is the first time, and she was crying. She said, this is the first time I've ever felt listened to and really deeply heard. And that's when I realized that her experience is not, is common with people. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that is, but that's how I coined the term listening other people into existence. Because what I had literally done in that circle was listen her into existence so that she, for the first time, felt deeply validated. I, I like that you say that because <laughs> it's funny because, I mean, here on the Intelligent Conversations, that's actually what I want to do. It's something that I want to portray everyone like, look, if you're just willing to sit down, listen to someone and just let them like speak, let them speak their mind say what's on their mind. You don't have to necessarily agree with them or like totally like be all for them, but just listen to them and see where they're coming from that you can actually learn quite a bit and it will excel you to 
new levels because you're willing to listen. And I, I like that you mentioned that. So, I mean, you mentioned business uh, real quick. How does, how, how do you think people can improve their listening skills in the business world? Well, the, 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 just by learning the, how to listen to emotions. I mean, the problem, the problem with listening to words is, is that we get bored really quickly and we get, and we get defocused or distracted on the other stuff. And so it's really hard to concentrate and listen to somebody's words. And that's why active listening never worked and never will work. We're too, and most of the time we're too focused on what we're going to say next to even hear what another person's going to say. But when you start listening to emotions, you're using a different part of your brain. And it becomes much easier to stay focused and concentrate on the emotional experience the speaker is having in the moment than it is to pay attention to their words. And, and, we're, and it turns out that our brains are hardwired for doing this. And all we have to do is let our brains do what they're naturally designed to do. And it's effortless and easy and quite accurate. And then it's just a simple matter of reflecting back with a use statement what they're experiencing. So I would say something like, Josh, oh, man, you are really angry. You're really pissed off. You're frustrated. You're anxious. You feel like you've been completely disrespected and ignored. It's making you sad. You've been betrayed by these people and you don't, you're confused as to why that's happening. And you feel abandoned and you don't feel worthy. And the whole thing is just really, really making you angry. So when I said that, none of this is your experiencing at the moment, but you probably have experienced that in the past. What did you feel inside yourself? Well, it's something where like for the first time, people actually, you know, are willing to understand what, I'm going through, I guess that I just, I just listened to you into existence. I love, I love that. That that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that actually part of, oh man, there's this book I read. It's uh, the seven habits of highly successful people, effective people. I think uh -huh. Stephen Covey. Yeah. Didn't he uh, talk about doing that? Like, isn't it? See, he spent 26 pages talking about the importance of listening, but never once told you how to do it. And that's the problem with all of these people. They all write books on listening and how important it is to listen or how important it is to have emotional intelligence. And not one of them, not one of them knows what they're talking about. They don't know how to teach it. They don't know how to do it. They don't do it. They just write about it. And it's, it, to me, it's very frustrating for me because uh, people can make a lot of money and make a big name for themselves. And they're absolutely clueless about the neuroscience behind all of this. They're clueless about emotions. They're clueless about the actual techniques and skills that are teachable. And, and not only that, they are not willing to go out and learn. They just pontificate. Yeah, I bet it is frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating. So Cubby, Cubby 26 pages. I, re I, I read it. I picked it up hoping, hey, maybe this guy's got something uh, that I can learn from. I read 26 pages. And this is 26 pages of utter bullshit. You know? Seven highly effective habits of people. No, no, no. You're telling people what to do. You're not telling them how to do it. And you'll, and you'll see that in most of these bestsellers. It's all about what to do, but, and I don't need to know what to do. I know what to do. I just need to know how to do it. Teach me how. So now I'm going to teach you how. I'm going to walk, walk my path. This is how you affect label. It's very simple. Three steps. Number one, ignore the words. Just ignore them. Don't care how angry they are. Just ignore them. It's white noise. Number two, read the emotional data fields. You can do that automatically. All you have to do is sit in silence Allow your brain to process what the other person is experiencing emotionally, and the emotions will pop into your head. You don't even have to work at it because our brains automatically do it. And then three, you reflect back the emotions with a simple you statement, just like I did with you a moment ago. Josh, you are angry. You are frustrated. You're upset. You're mad. You're confused. You feel betrayed. Whatever the emotions are, 
simple, direct, declarative use statements. No questions, no I statements. And that's all you have to do. Yeah, that, that that's a really, uh, it's, it's pretty simple, actually. I feel like a lot of people actually get, they talk with I statements, right? Like, I love that you're using I statements, but you statements, I think it puts, for me, especially, it's where I put focus matters. Like you can tell where a focus, like where someone is focusing just based off how they talk. And I mean, I know this is a little bit off from what you're talking about, but so I found when I like, when someone is talking about, I don't know, business or whatever, that their focus is solely on that and their mind is going to be on that. Whereas uh, maybe the next person that's thinking of a response, they're going to be focusing on something else. And sometimes we just need to listen and almost, I don't know, I don't really know what to say there, I guess, but it's okay. People, people tend to, people tend not to listen because they don't know how to listen and they don't know what to listen for. And because we're not, we're never taught how to listen. Even, even small children, we're told not to interrupt and, and turn taking and all that, but we're really never taught other than the rudiments of paying attention just enough so you know what the, kind of get an idea of what the other person is speaking we never learn how to s- listen and reflect back from the speaker's frame of reference and that's why there's so many broken relationships and so much miscommunication is because as i said before emo- people come out of childhood emotionally incompetent they carry that emotional inc- incompetency into adulthood into their relationships and they really don't know how to be emotionally self-aware, how to emotionally self-regulate, and how to reflect back the emotions to others, which is cognitive and affective empathy. And yet these are all skills that can be learned and mastered and learned quickly. I mean, this is not years and years and years of work. This is, we're talking week, uh, a couple of weeks of work if, if you really want to work at it. Uh, and it changes everything. And yet, because our society has such a bias against emotions, most people don't even want to go close to this stuff because it's not safe. Yeah, what what do you mean by not safe there? Well, because we are emotionally invalidated as children, almost universally, and by that I mean when you're two years old and you scrape your knee, you're told not to cry. And every time you have an upset as a child, you're told not to have that emotion. You're judged or criticized or put down or taunted or teased because you had an emotion. Or an adult tells you to grow up and don't have an emotion. This happens over and over and over again. That's all called emotional invalidation. And it's the most insidious, pervasive form of emotional abuse that exists, and it's universal. The problem is that we never experience emotional safety, deep emotional safety. And so what do we do? We become emotionally defensive and emotionally unavailable, and we build a wall around us that nobody else can get into. And even in relationships, intimate relationships, we only let our partner in so far and no further than that, because we really are afraid to let somebody see the real me because that's too scary because really i'm an unworthy piece of shit right that's the way most people think because that's what they were told um and so they're, they're they're not they're not emotionally safe and as a consequence they cannot unless they are trained in how to be emotionally competent they can't come out of that cave it's really a problem for men it's but it's a problem for women too and 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 and, and so that's that's the challenge we have However, when you learn how to affect label and listen to people's emotions, you create immediate emotional safety. And within that bubble of emotional safety, you can build trust, loyalty, motivation. You can build intimacy. Uh, you, if you're in business, you become a leader that everyone wants to follow. If you are in friendships, your friends will be 
unwaveringly loyal to you. If you're in a relationship, your partner will, you'll have a, a deep loving relationship that is beyond description, all because you learn how to listen to emotions rather than listen to words. I, I really like the points you've been making. I, I, I want to kind of touch on something where I think, especially when you start mentioning like how everyone has that wall where like they only like let people in so far, what instantly popped into my head was actually, oh, that's just the bubble, right? Like don't break the personal bubble type of thing. And I'm just like, it is funny that as a society, that's just, it's except like you don't break the bubble. Like you can only go in so far type of thing. But I, I, I don't know. I kind of want to hear your thoughts. I mean, is there any risk for like totally exposing yourself like to too many people by chance? Like, I, I mean, obviously like relationships like wife, friends, people like that, you want to do that, correct? But I mean, I would be concerned just doing it to everyone would be my concern. Well, obviously you use discernment about who you're going to listen to and how you're going to listen to them. But when you listen to other people's emotions, it doesn't make you weak or vulnerable. It makes you strong and powerful because you become egoless and you can no longer be attacked. No, nobody can harm you. you. You enter into a place in your brain, in your essence, where you are completely invulnerable to what other people say. And you also begin to recognize that they're just being emotional. And when you recognize their emotional state, it can no longer have an effect on you. It's really quite powerful. Okay, gotcha. So it's so discernment would be a key part of Of course, that. absolutely. Yeah, okay, gotcha. That's funny that you mentioned that because it reminds me, that's something I asked my grandfather. I'm like, what's the greatest piece of advice that you could give to a guy that's just graduating high school? What, what advice would you give? And he's like, learn discernment. And it's funny that you actually mentioned that because you have to be able to discern people and all that fun stuff. So I kind of want to change gears here. I know you're really big on leadership and you know how to pretty much produce emotionally competent leaders. Uh, how do you uh, make pretty much, what, what, what's the difference between a leader and manager? Managers manage things. Leaders lead people. Love it. People are not things. That's the simplest definition. And that's, that's where the great problem is because people think people who call themselves managers or managers think that they're managing people. People are not there to be, people can never be managed. They can only be led. You can manage schedules and production lines and you can manage code and you can manage graphic design. You can manage all kinds of things, but you cannot manage people. You have to lead them. And that's a completely different set of skills than management. And of course, leadership is not taught in graduate business schools, <laughs> you know? They teach management, how to manage things, but they don't teach you how to lead people. I, I like the thoughts there. I, I kind of want to know what, what skills are necessary that colleges and graduate degrees are not teaching in order to become business leaders. Well, a leader provides three fundamental services to a group, focus, direction, and safety. And so all of the skills that a competent leader must master involve learning skills around how to focus, how to give directions, how to, how to direct people what to do, and how to create emotional and psychological safety. So with some of the more specific skills are, I mean, really simple stuff, like how to run an effective meeting without wasting people's time. You'd be amazed at how many people don't, don't know how to run meetings. You know, how to in, engage in how to manage conflict, how to um, 
you know, understanding the difference between adaptive and technical leadership and, and which, when do you use adaptive leadership techniques and when do you use technical leadership techniques? Um, how to problem solve, how to make decisions, understanding the three group decision-making processes, which are authoritarian, democratic, and consensus-based decision-making, uh, and understanding when the, the strengths and weaknesses of each and when you would use them. Things like that. Uh, you know, there's a whole list of leadership skills that need to be mastered that are never taught. Okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm going to kind of follow up and keep this train of thought going. Why do you think that's not taught in schools? Because business professors have, they're like other academics, they have to publish or perish. And you can't, you can't publish a scholarly article on intangible things like leadership because there's no research out. You can't do research on it. And so they, their tenure is based on publishing stuff that they can do research on. And, and, and this is true not only in business school, but for example, education is the same thing. Education professors have to publish or perish. They, they have to do research. You can't research leadership. You can't, it's very difficult to research emotions unless you're a neuroscientist. And so they ignore it. They just ignore it because they can't research on it. They can't write on it. They don't get credit for it. So they just ignore it. And it becomes much easier to talk about quantitative analysis than it is to talk about, you know, reading emotional data fields. Gotcha. So would there, I mean, you said that a neuroscientist is the only people that can really research emotions. Uh, how, have you been doing things that like been progressing that and getting that into the thing? And like, could you share some of those insights? I'm not sure I understand your question. Let me rephrase that. So are you doing what what are you doing right now i mean you're obviously an accomplished individual what are you doing as you you do have you you're a neuroscientist well and okay i see i see what you're saying no i'm not a neuroscientist i'm a student of i'm a, a lay student of neuroscience but i would never call myself a neuroscientist i study the science because the science informs me and in practices so what i do is i take the science and the understanding that the science gives me and turn it into practical application such as affect labeling and figuring out, okay, what does this mean? If, you know, if, the, if this is how we were processing information, then what is the implication in terms of how I engage people, for example, in a conflict to, to find either deescalate or calm down or engage in problem solving. And so I take the science and try to find practical use for it. That's what I do. Okay. Gotcha. So I, I guess, this is what I was asking. I sorry, my words were a little confused there. But uh, so you understand that field, you understand how it works. Uh, you're also a lawyer. What do you do in terms of when we were talking about education and business where they're doing research? Is there anything you're doing right now to actually get in there? Because I mean, you're an accomplished individual, I'm sure you have well, things to share. Yeah, this is all very, very new information. I mean, a Lieberman study came out in 2007. It's not even 14 years, hardly, maybe 14 years now. So it's brand new. Uh, one of the things I'm doing is getting on a lot of podcasts, just like your podcast, to try to explain to the largest number of people possible what this science is, what it means, and the implications of it. Things aren't going to change in the educational system until the people start to change. Educators will move with the population. The population doesn't move with the educators. So the more people that are skilled in, in using these tools at the, ground, at the ground level, the more likely it is that academics will start to recognize it 
and start thinking about it. But if Doug Norrell came in and said, hey, you guys, you guys really need to think about, think about what you're teaching in a different way, they won't accept that because I'm not one of them. Worse, I'm a lawyer. So, <laughs> so my credibility within the academic circles, within some academic circles, is, is non-existent. In other academic circles, I'm renowned, internationally renowned. But uh, in the circles where that you're talking about, in business schools, for example, or in educational departments, university educational departments, I have, I have, no one's ever heard of me. I have no influence. They would never listen. To yeah, me. Uh, that's kind of a shame because I mean, it's the way it is up. in academia, you know, you got to, you develop an expertise in academia, you publish around it, and that's that's your career, and you really don't want to hear other ideas because they get in the way of what you're writing about, and that's just that's the nature of. That's the way academia has been for a long time, thousands of years. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't like to be challenged about their ideas or have those conversations about, hey, I don't agree with you type of thing, or hey, what you're doing. Well, it's not just, it, 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 you know, if I'm telling, if I'm telling somebody, a professor, for example, that look, the problem you're looking, you're looking at the problem in one dimension, and really this is a multidisciplinary, multidimensional problem that requires you to master five different disciplines that you have no dis mastery over now, they're going to tell me to go jump in a lake. But when I say, for example, I mean, as, a, as an effective peacemaker, I've got to understand behavioral economics. I've got to understand neuroscience, cognitive, cognitive psychology, social psychology. I've got to understand uh, neuroeconomics. I've got to understand probability theory. I mean, there's just a whole ton of disciplines that you have to master as a peacemaker in order to bring all of these different tools to bear on the conflict at hand. And that is not the way of academia. Academia eschews multidisciplinary thinking. They don't like it. They want everybody to stay within their guardrails, narrow guardrails. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I've liked what you've been uh, saying today. I've, you've definitely made a couple of good points. And I kind of, as we're wrapping up here, I want to get some of your final thoughts. And what do you want the audience to take away? What do you want the audience to remember about you? What do they want to remember about Doug Null? Well, I don't care whether people remember Doug Knoll. What I care about is that people know that there are effective, powerful tools that can transform lives. You can learn how to listen another person into existence in, in, in very quickly. Uh, you can actually learn the skills just by reading the book, my book, Deescalate, or take one of my online video courses, and then practice it for two or three weeks, and then you'll have it. And when you learn how to listen to another person into existence, a couple of things happen. One, you transform yourself. And two, you give an enormous gift, a precious gift to other people. And it costs you nothing. It's free. All you have to do is listen. It costs you, it costs you two minutes of time. And you can completely change lives, the lives of everybody around you. And if you want to make the world a better place, one of the ways to do that is to listen to other people into existence. Just listen to the people around you into existence, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your, your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, your colleagues. Listen them into existence and you will make the world a better place automatically just by doing that. And so just learn the skills and use them. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, if people wanna reach out to you, I mean, you mentioned course, books. Uh, if they wanna reach out to you, maybe get some training like that, what's the best way that they can do that? I, I have created a web page for everybody who's listening today. And you can go to uh, Doug Noll, D O U G G N O L dot C O slash 
intelligent conversation. And on that page, you'll find you can get a free ebook. You can get buy my book, Deescalate. You can buy an online video course on learning how to deescalate. And you can also buy my basic and advanced emotional competency courses. And of course, from there, you can explore the rest of my website, which has got a lot of other resources on it. Dougnoll.co slash intelligent conversations. Okay, sweet. Yeah, thank you uh, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. You've had great things to say. And yeah, thank you for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's been a great conversation. So everyone, as you can tell, that is Doug Knoll. He is a very intelligent person. I would take some of his techniques, go check him out as he just gave his information there and tune into next week's episode. We got a great guest lined up and thank you guys for listening to this episode. We could not have done this without you guys and see you guys next week. Let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We cannot have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and there should be a form there for you guys to fill out. Thank you guys again and let's get after it.